Hello and welcome to our London History Podcast, where we share our love of London, its people, places and history. This podcast is designed for you to learn things about London that most Londoners don't even know, all in 20 minutes. I am your host, Hazel Baker, Qualified London Tour Guide and CEO of LondonGuidedWalks.co.uk. Show notes plus photos and recommended reading can be found on each associated episode's webpage. Simply go to LondonGuidedWalks.co.uk forward slash podcast. Don't forget, if you enjoy what we do, then please rate and review. It warms the cockles of my heart to read your appreciation of this labour of love. Get that cup of tea, put your feet up and enjoy. If you stroll down Maiden Lane in London's West End, you'll come across a green plaque honouring the great Voltaire. The plaque commemorates the spot where he once lived whilst writing some of his most famous works. Although he only spent a brief time in London, it made a lasting impression on him and helped shape his critical thinking. What would Voltaire make of London today? The great enlightened thinker spent a couple of years enjoying London's charms. Of course, London has changed a lot since then, but some things never change. Voltaire would doubtless appreciate the city's famed sense of irony and humour. Joining me in the studio today is City of London tour guide Ian McDermott to discuss Voltaire and his life in London. Hello, Ian. Hi there. All right, it's not an obvious one, is it, Voltaire in London? No, and you by, began by mentioning the, the plaque in Maiden Lane, and I've been thinking about plaques the past couple of days. I've never really thought about them before, but I have mixed feelings about them, and although I've never discussed this topic with anyone, I suspect my thoughts are probably shared by many, and that is that they are so often thoroughly disappointing, aren't they? It's like particularly in south-west London, sort of around Kensington, Belgravia, you see a plaque on a building, you cross the road, and often something like most eminent practitioner of garden design between 1860 and 1880 or something, and you think, oh, really? It's just people with a puffed-up sense of their own importance <laughs> trying to puff themselves up a bit more by showing how important their house is. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there are some good plaques, and I like this one to Voltaire. I, I like it partly because he's uh, obviously so important, but also because uh, Maiden Lane's a very pleasant street, but there's, I think there's nothing that remains from the time Voltaire was there. I think it's all 19th century, isn't it? And I like it when a plaque tells you something you didn't know about somebody who's important and interesting and it fires the imagination and it does all of those things to me. And also when we walk past plaques, I tend to take them for granted, but actually reconstructing Voltaire's movements in London was quite difficult and it was done by Norma Perry, who, if I remember correctly, was a lecturer in English at Exeter University, and she did these extensive researches. And difficult because, as you and I know, with our kind of fumblings around with uh, London history, fumblings around in my case, perhaps they're a little bit more erudite in your case, Hazel, but it's very difficult to pinpoint things down in the past often. It's very, very frustrating. And she had a lot of difficulty, I think, because the names of streets change, buildings that were there aren't there anymore. 
she finally did the research, and this plaque was first put up there in 1979, and then it was then replaced by the one we see today in 1994. And they had a bit of a ceremony, and they got the uh, French ambassador along, which I quite like, because so often when you read the press, it's all about sort of troubles between Britain and France, like with Boris Johnson and Macron and all the rest of it. But obviously the ties between the two countries are very important. To say Voltaire's a hero of mine is a bit difficult because he was he was a bit of an odd character. There are some uncomfortable things about his life. One of the things about him is he had a very long relationship, and I mean relationship, with his niece, parallels with previous podcasts on eminent people like Hook. And also he there, there are sort of hints of some rather dark financial dealings on, on his side. There's no such thing as a hero. But leaving aside, I mean, he is... He was immensely clever, funny, and a critic of the Ancien Regime. And yes, if we can put aside the questionable parts of his life, incredibly important and very, very admirable. So it was very, very interesting for me to see this plaque in Maiden Lane. I should perhaps mention uh, his other places. He he was here in London uh, between May 1726 and autumn 1728. And the first couple of months he uh, spent in Wandsworth, uh, he then moves to um, Durham Court, which is, well, which was on um, what is now John Adams Street. So that's just to the south of the Strand. And then he moves just north of the Strand uh, to where this plaque is um, on Maiden Lane and remained there uh, six months and then goes back to Wandsworth briefly and then goes back to France. So that, that's a sort of summary of his, his movements. So he seemed to like the West End then? Yes. Well, uh, that and Wandsworth. And I think there's a pattern here. And the pattern is partly former acquaintances of Voltaire in France. He knew Faulkner, a man named Everard, Everard Faulkner, uh, who he stays with in Wandsworth. He was a merchant, but he had ties with France. He was living in France. And in uh, Wandsworth, he ran a dye works. And in Wandsworth, Wandsworth, along with Greenwich, was, I think, the largest concentration of Huguenot, i.e. French Protestant immigrants outside the uh, centre of London, certainly within the sort of London area. Um, So that's quite interesting. And then he moves up to Durham Court, and Durham Court is the residence of the secretary of Lord Bolingbroke, who had been in exile in in France. Voltaire pays, pays this man for his rent, but nevertheless, again, connection with France. And then he moves up to Maiden Lane, and he stays in uh, a property called the White Peruque. And this is a barber shop uh, run by a Huguenot called Pierre Pellon. So there's a sort of strong Huguenot connection there. And I think these th- th- this connection with the Huguenots is obviously important to Voltaire because as a great critic of the Catholic Church in France, he would find a natural home among them to some extent, uh, though Voltaire was irritated by the more austere forms of Protestantism, or not, not as much as he was by Catholicism, but he, he found them pretty difficult as well. Uh, but sort of the, the kind of more libertarian Huguenots he could get on with quite well. And of course, they're native French speakers. And one of the reasons he comes to London is because he's produced this great epic poem called The Henriade, about Henry IV, and one of the things that he does in this great epic poem is to extol Henry's rather sort of tolerant attitude towards religion and also decries the anti-Protestant policies of the the Catholic Church. And it was therefore 
quite difficult to publish in France. And what he wanted to do was to come over to England and to get a really proper edition made. So, so that quite suited, I, I think, moving in with the, within the Huguenots. And the Huguenots are very interesting in, in London. There are two big centres of them. One is centred on the French church in uh, Threadneedle Street in the heart of the city. But the other is where he is around the Strand, centred on the Savoy. Um, earlier on, Charles II had granted Huguenots the right to a chapel in what had been the Savoy on condition that they followed the rights of the Church of England. So the Huguenots in the Savoy chapel, they basically had the prayer translated into French and used that, which caused a certain amount of friction with the more austere Protestants over in the city. But nevertheless, there were these two great concentrations of Huguenots within central London, one based on the city in Spitalfields and, and the other in the Strand. And in the Strand, there were lots of craftsmen, wig makers, as our man Francis Pellon was, as, in addition to being a barber, hence the name the White Peruke. Um, and, and so on. So it was quite a sort of natural place for him to come to. And what do we know about his movements? Well, we know that he met the poet uh, Alexander Pope and the great satirist Jonathan Swift, author of Gulliver's Travels, and John Gay, who was the author of The Beggar's Opera. The stay in England and in London will lead to one of Voltaire's best-known books, which has the title, well, had the original title in, in English, Letters Concerning the English Nation. And in that, it's a series of letters. And in that one of those letters, he mentions the name of a couple of opera singers in the Haymarket. And I think that they were called Senesino and Cuzzoni. And therefore, it's a logical conclusion to draw that he went to the uh, Haymarket to see Handel Opera sung by these people. And we also know that he was presented at court and he was patronised by the Queen, Queen Caroline, and he dedicates the edition of the Henriade to her as well. And then finally, we, we also know, very important for Voltaire, he witnessed the uh, state funeral of Isaac Newton in 1727. And one of his letters is, is about Newton, and Newton forms an, is an incredibly important influence on Voltaire. When he goes back to France, he will have one of his most long-standing relationships with Emily du Châtelet, who will be the first person to translate Newton's Principia in, into French. And throughout, Voltaire, Newton is one of Voltaire's heroes. You mentioned getting a proper edition of the Henriade. What were the other reasons he came to England? Well, one is, I think... Uh, a long-standing desire on his part probably to visit England. Well, because of all of the things that Voltaire was opposed to in France. So he disliked the Catholic Church. He disliked the arbitrary and absolute French monarchy. And England was an alternative model, a, a, things, a place where the government wasn't arbitrary, where the king was subject to the law, where you couldn't be put in prison without a trial, where the press was fairly free. So a lot of the things that Voltaire naturally admired were things that England championed, and therefore it was um, a natural place for him to be curious about and want to want to visit over the long term. The second reason for his leaving France to come to England is a rather more pressing one, and that is to get him out of the Bastille. Voltaire had been imprisoned in the Bastille before. Earlier on, he had written scurrilous poetry about the Prince Regent and had in particular, recycled 
a fairly widespread rumour that the regent was having an incestuous relationship with his daughter, and that got him quite a lengthy spell in the Bastille without trial. And then just before he his exit to England, he had insulted a French aristocrat, the Chevalier de Rouen Chabot, and we don't precisely know what happened, but it looks as though Durand Chabot didn't like Voltaire very much, and he made some disparaging remark about Voltaire's relatively humble origins. Voltaire's father was extremely rich by 18th century standards. He was a notary, but that made him a member of the bourgeoisie and not a, a noble. And secondly, Voltaire had adopted the name Voltaire. He was born Arouet, and therefore had taken on this name. And it looks as though Rouen Chabot made some disparaging remark about asking Voltaire, who are you? Are you Arouet or are you Voltaire? Implying that his name was made up and that he was of common origins. And Voltaire came back at him with some uh, pithy remark and it went downhill from there. And de Rouen Chabot had Voltaire beaten up. Voltaire then responds by challenging him to a duel, but he's an aristocrat. He won't deign to fight a duel with a bourgeois, and therefore he gets his, through influence, he gets Voltaire imprisoned in the Bastille. But, but Voltaire's only in there for a couple of weeks, and it looks as though he's done some deal with the authorities. And the authorities on the quiet say, OK, we'll let you out, but you have to stay outside. Either you have to stay outside Paris, or they might have stipulated that they want him to get out of the kingdom as a whole. And it looks as though Voltaire is escorted to the French coast uh, by people in the employ of the, the French crown, and hence over to England. And again, this, this sort of episode is fairly typical of Voltaire. On the one hand, he's, he's brushing up against the autocratic, arbitrary state in France. But again, it's him being indiscreet and getting himself into trouble. So this is fairly typical of Voltaire. And then he flees over to... England. So a mixture of motives for coming over here. And how important was the trip to the Letters on England? Yeah, well, the the Letters on England is perhaps, I think nowadays, Voltaire's best known work after Condide. He he saw himself as a writer writer of great plays and epic poetry, but certainly... I'm not quite sure in France, what, what happens in France, but certainly in the English-speaking world, the, 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 the two works that he are best known for are, are those, I would say. And the Letters on England are important also because later on they, are, they become a kind of manifesto for the Enlightenment in general. And the book has a rather mixed nature. On the one hand, it, superficially, it's like a kind of um, travel book on... England, but it's a travel book with a difference because people before Voltaire, when they'd been writing about, in, well, in general about England, say, had been doing topographical surveys, and Voltaire's no interest in that kind of thing at all. And this is one of the one of the difficulties Norma Perry, I think, had in, in tracing his movements in England, is that within the Letters on England, there are no topographical references at all, and in a way. That's kind of disappointing because you'd, you'd love to see a description of London, but Voltaire's just not interested in that. It's about ideas. It's about describing England, and it works on a couple of levels. On the one hand, it's a, it's a summary of the English and describing to a French audience how odd the English are, which would meet with a ready representation. So it's a lot about English eccentricity, and I think the best bits of the book are the bits on English religion. So the first chapters of the book are on religion. The first four chapters of the book are on the Quakers and then the other forms of religion in England. And this would work very well with the French audience, particularly on the Quakers. I mean, the Quakers weren't particularly significant. They certainly wouldn't merit the first four chapters of a book in terms of their 
numerical presence, but Voltaire is fascinated by them. And they are, I think, to the eyes of Voltaire and indeed to a sort of French audience, very, very funny is the fact they don't take their hats off, the fact that they address people as thou. And Voltaire describes all this. But behind this kind of flippancy, there is a deep reverence for England. And there's the, the great quote from the book uh, about religion in England, which he says there were only one religion in England, there would be danger of despotism. If there were two, they would cut each other's throats. But there are 30, and they live in peace and happiness. And this shows Voltaire's deep, deep reverence for England. And although it's superficially taking the mickey out of the English and their funny ways, England is a tolerant society, according to Voltaire, where religion is not allowed to dominate life where the English tolerate each other. And, of course, this is the great thing about he's writing a book on England, but the real target of it is France. The other chapters in the book often take on a more serious form. So he writes a chapter, for example, on Mary Montague Worsley, who introduces smallpox inoculation into England. And there, the, the point behind it is, look, the, the English have... A, adopted this method, they've realised it's worked by experimentation, it works. In England, this is widely diffused. We should be doing this in France as well. And he writes letters on Locke and Newton. And again, these don't have the kind of jokey feel of the coverage of of religion in England, just a serious thing of, of describing them and saying how important they are and how important in particular is their empirical method And again, by implication, this is something that France should adopt. And one of the the lines in the book is something along the lines of uh, a Frenchman who arrives in London will find philosophy, like everything else, very much changed there. He had left the world a plenum, and he now finds it a vacuum. And this is a reference to Descartes and Newton. Descartes had explained what Newton would explain by gravity, by describing the universe as full of vortices. And this was how the the motion of the planets, for example, was explained. And of course, Newton's universe is one that's in part empty of matter, and it's where the force of gravity can act on bodies over long distances without the need for vortices. And uh, Voltaire is championing the cause of Newton. So I've got a couple of questions. First one up is, where were his books and papers published? In a variety of places. First of all, the the problem was that in in France, one of the problems with with the French was that they had uh, censorship. And what you would do, if you were publishing in France, you'd play a game. You might, if you were if you were on the right side of things, you'd get official sanction and the the king would sanction your book and you could get it printed. Then there were lots of works with which, to which the authorities turned a blind eye, blind eye. And someone like Voltaire would get a lot of his works printed outside France in places like the Netherlands and also in Switzerland and then get them transported into France. And then there were books that were outright banned, which again, you would then have to play a cat and mouse game with the authorities getting them uh, published abroad and smuggled into the country. In England, in London, he's relying on, he's doing it obviously in the open, and he's relying on the, the book publishers. And a couple of these are based in the city. So I think it's documented that Voltaire uh, goes and visits one of these in the city, and then you've got a lot of the, the, the Huguenot skilled workers either working in and around the Strand or, or in the city itself. And is he writing in French or English? Well, that's 
quite an interesting question because uh, the letters in England, letters concerning the English nation, have quite a convoluted process of coming to publication. The first of all, published in English as letters concerning the English nation, but that is a translation of Voltaire's own French. And then in the same year, he publishes them in French. He then goes back to France and then publishes in France the work in French with a slightly different title. When he publishes them in France, they become the Lettres Philosophiques. And I think th there are two reasons for the change in title from Letters Concerning the English Nation to Philosophical Letters. One is to, tr I think, probably to try to get a little bit under the radar of the French authorities. I think they'd be, if they saw the title Letters on England, they'd be sort of fairly wise as to what was going on. And also they would know of the, the work through it already be appearing in England. And secondly, he does a, a thing that's rather odd to a modern reader. On the, on the back of the book, he tacks on a 25th letter, which is about the thinkings of Pascal, the great French philosopher. And this reads a bit odd because it's got nothing to do with London, nothing to do with England. But I think it's to do with the book's evolution as a kind of manifesto for the Enlightenment as a whole, because, again, by attacking Pascal, he is putting on once more his sort of credentials as a, a philosopher, um, a man leading the Enlightenment, and a man who's very much uh, on the side of empiricism. And is he making any money? It's difficult. Yes, he, he is, because this becomes a bestseller, particularly in England, but also in, in France as well. So he's phenomenal publishing success. And throughout his life, he has a mixture of financial success and financial failures with his literary projects. But the ones that sort of fail, I don't think, lose him a great deal of money. And he is an pu absolute publishing sensation with with this work and also obviously later on with a couple of his works and in particular Candide which uh, again goes ballistic in terms of uh, 18th century sale and then Voltaire is also quite well off I mean he, he's as I mentioned his father who incidentally to mention in par passing a typical Voltairean touch he later on denies that his father is his father and as with Voltaire who knows really I, I, he, he was probably just saying that he was illegitimate for effect, I think. But let's make the assumption that, that his uh, official father was his, was indeed his natural father. His father was rich and he left Voltaire some inheritance. And then Voltaire seems to be spectacularly successful in, in making money. He goes into, he has various ventures whereby he's lending money out. And notoriously, he has this great scheme whereby he and some colleagues later on make a huge amount out of the French lottery. They, they realise that they're in the state lottery that there's a fundamental flaw. And if you buy up certain tickets, you're pretty much guaranteed to win. And they do that, and they make a huge amount of money. And throughout his life, he is very wealthy. And he later sets himself up, up as a kind of landed gentleman in, in France, though landed gentleman near the Swiss border. He's a very in very, very close contact with Geneva at a place called Fernay, which is now known as Fernay-Voltaire. And it, basically, it's... Uh, yeah, it's just a few miles north of Geneva, so he can get across the border if, should he ever need to, uh, and escape the French authorities. And you're saying it was a bestseller over here. I'm assuming that is an English version, and the English quite liked being praised for their ability to get on, and our eccentricity is something we're quite proud of even now, isn't it? 
Yes, I think so. I mean, I, I always think this when I read the book, that it's um, a great summary of what England is, if you're taking a very positive view of England. And also it's a kind of great call to what England could be, because the and this is why English people liked it, because it is it is deeply flattering. So it is England as a land full of eccentrics and a land of toleration and a land which appreciates progress. It's also a land of uh, commerce ruled by Parliament. And a lot of these things are uh, relevant to the 18th century, but a lot of them are relevant to now as well, I think. And, and, and indeed, there's a great debate in the historiography on England as a whole in the 18th century, uh, whether England conforms to Voltaire's model, as the one I've just described, as a rather enlightened, progressive place, or... As later on in the century, the people who carrying out the American Revolution, the American founding fathers, when they describe England, they describe it as being sort of uh, old corruption, uh, dominated by aristocracy and completely at odds with the modern republic that they're creating in America. So you've got these two sides of the argument. And inevitably, uh, modern historians debate along pretty much similar lines. There are certain historians who think uh, 18th century England was just another ancien regime European country and there are others who think that it uh, is kind of the most progressive part of Europe and uh, uh, yeah I, I rather hope I'm well I'm rather with Voltaire on that one in my uh, non-expert uh, appreciation of it I, I, I think England conformed more to Voltaire's picture than the derogatory picture later presented by the American revolutionaries and as I say it's kind of it was a great manifesto for the enlightenment and it, it, it's also a great manifesto for what England can and should be today. And do you think Voltaire would have thought himself as a philosopher or an author? Both, I think. I mean, he, he later on in his life at Ferney, he held court. People would come and visit him and uh, ask for sort of, well, obviously in search for sort of uh, droplets of wisdom from the, the, the mouth of the great philosopher. And the other thing to remember about him is not only his kind of intellectual seriousness, but the fact he was extremely funny. And I think that comes out a bit in the, I mean, humour doesn't, travel down the centuries but the, the the descriptions of the quakers you can see is is really going to be quite funny to uh, uh, an, an 18th century french audience in particular but it, i mean he was throughout his life he loved being outrageous he when he goes back to france he as i say he had this long relationship with emily du chatelet one of the th- things she does and it is that she opens his correspondence and that's quite a creepy thing and it, it might well be a kind of emotional thing of trying to keep him close to her but on the other hand she was also very much concerned about him getting himself into trouble and she wanted to keep an eye on him and stop him getting into arguments he he just couldn't stop himself really when when he when he felt insulted he'd go off and he needed to win his debates and so as i say outrageous and very very funny well thank you very much Ian. that was very interesting Good. My my pleasure, Hazel. And for listeners, if you want to know more about the 18th century, then jump on to the show notes for this episode, Voltaire in London. And you can listen to episode 70 about Dr. Robert Hooke, um, episode 63 about Handel in London and the soprano uh, Cuzzoni. And also I'll link in some other 18th century London podcasts in there for you. And we also provide a full transcript and a few photos. That's all for now. See you next time.